I don't think that those first two weeks of the writer's strike, to see the streets filled the way they were, to yeah. see people who weren't writers, just regular fans, people who supported the strike, that doesn't happen without the protest for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. That doesn't happen without that public outcry that happened in 2020. People were ignited in that moment. And and especially like, I don't know if it's Gen Z or whatever, but the youth, the, the people who were teenagers at that time. Yeah. Uh, you see them out in full force. And like we were picketing in lower Manhattan multiple times. And I would just ask people like, oh, are you a writer? And they're like, they'd be, they could say they pre-WGA or they were just like, just a fan. I just think this is wrong. I think you should get like that kind of sentiment where they were just people who were just doing the research. This is Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Rees. Fam, I am delighted to bring you today author, WGA union screenwriter, strike captain, and actor, Don P. Hooper. He's got a brand new book, True True, his first ever novel hitting bookstores this week on Tuesday. I am so excited for you to get to know Don's work. Previously, he contributed a story to the compendium Black Boy Joy, 17 stories celebrating black manhood. Here's a content warning for you. We discuss trauma, racism, labor, hate-based violence, and explicit language. And we do talk quite a bit about the WGA SAG after strike. So as always, viewer and listener discretion is advised. We go on to talk about what it has been like to shut down productions across the country how the role of strike captain is so much about taking care of your people, how you, listening and watching at home, can support writers and actors on strike, the importance of good mentors and collaborators, the tenacity and resistance that are quintessential parts of black African American life, the process of writing a novel and rewriting, and rewriting. And this first novel of Don's, True True, the story of how it came about, of writing himself into the characters. We ask questions of goodness, identity, and morality of AI. We trace the through line of social uprising since 2016, and we talk about survival, belonging, and community in a post Trump presidency world. This was one of the most powerful interviews I have ever had the privilege of recording. Please enjoy my chat to Don P. Hooper. So, Don, I'll just jump right to it. I'm drinking some decaf coffee right now. How important is proper caffeination to a strike captain like yourself? I am not a caffeine drinker, but I've been on picket lines that have started as early as 4 or 5 a.m. And I always try to make sure there is coffee. That, that's a big thing because you need that energy early in the morning. Uh, for, for me, it's like by the time I get there, I usually haven't slept. Now that SAG is on strike, we don't have like early morning pickets anymore. Most of them start at like 9 a.m. But coffee is still always welcome. 
People love coffee. So talk to me what it's like when it's hot at nine in the morning and you have a bunch of creatives like up way before any reasonable call time. You know what? I, honestly, the, the energy with the writer's strike, especially like, you know, it started in May, like midnight go from May 1st going into May 2nd. Sure. And during that time, it was still chill outside. But like going into like late June, that's when it started to get really hot. And then by the time 9am, especially in July, and that 9am rolls around 10am, especially in the city, you always have to stay moving so that they can't say that you're blocking an entrance. Yeah. So, and there's so many people that eventually show up, especially with SAG after on strike too, that you always got to stay moving and you're sweating that whole time. So hydration is just important. That That's a, a big thing for strike captains is to just you know, be mindful of everybody that's on the line and just like always check in with them and make sure that they're, they're hydrated and that they take breaks if they need to, you know, and also like sometimes to, uh, change the direction of the circle, because when you're walking in these tight loops, you'll notice like the next day that your hip has gone in one direction, if you haven't changed <laughs> it and you just like feel like weirdly off balance. So that was something I learned, like maybe in May, somebody said it, I think we, I forgot where we were picketing, but like, we're picketing a production and somebody was like, we should change the direction of the circle. And I was like, that makes logical sense. And it, it helped out tremendously. Like my feet weren't off balance the next day. I was like, wow. So every day after that, <laughs> it was like, like it spread like wildfire, like change the direction of the circle. It's time change the direction of the circle. So that's, that's important. It, it's, 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 it's good, especially with like SAG going on strike the second, third week of July, whichever it was, I think it was the 17th. Yeah. It's just a lot of renewed energy. Because, you know, two months in for the writers, people are on vacation. Sure. Nationally, there's only there's 12,000 writers on strike. But nationally with sag after, there's, I think, 160,000 members, you know, some some active, some not. But like that just sure. increases the numbers of people and it just reinvigorates the energy. This is a long fight that we're, we're in for. And you've heard messages from like CEOs and executives of how they plan to just drag out this strike by starving us out. So having that renewed energy, having that support from the public, people just stopping by, like uh, we've been on picket, picket lines at live productions or um, on location shoots and just sure fans, regular people stopping by and like, I'll go get you guys water. That was really helpful. You know, just seeing that public support come out in, in that shape, like people quickly giving us ways to not pass out was always helpful. The the energy around picketing for Black Lives Matter, around continuing to just be present and to dig in for the long haul, as you said, the the CEOs are saying that, yes, they, they're saying the inside things out loud. And this this work for basic human dignity it has that same sort of sense that like there this is not the end of an old contract and the end of something but it's the beginning of another thing that i i think we all have to hope will be better what it feels like as an outsider who has friends who are directly affected as a consumer of my friend's work does it feel like there is a legitimate opportunity for meaningful and very human progress with this i, th I think for me the meaningful and human progress 
is what you see on the streets. I can't say what's going to happen at the these executive levels and these CEO levels sure. on the corporate side of it. But I don't think that those first two weeks of the writer's strike, to see the streets filled the way they were, to yeah. see people who weren't writers, just regular fans, people who supported the strike, that doesn't happen without the protest for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. That doesn't happen without that public outcry that happened in 2020. People were ignited in that moment. And and especially like, I don't know if it's Gen Z or whatever, but the youth, the, the people who were teenagers at that time. Yeah. Uh, you see them out in full force. And like we were picketing in lower Manhattan multiple times. And I would just ask people like, oh, are you a writer? And they're like, they'd be, they could say they pre-WGA or they were just like, just a fan. I just think this is wrong. I think you should get like that kind of sentiment where they were just people who were just doing the research before yeah. we were putting it out there in a certain way. They had just, they just were fully supportive. And I think that that is what is constantly growing and seeing that increase. Like you, you also see the negative throwback of it. Like sometimes yes. there's a negative throwback against this kind of organizing, but if not for 2020, and you know, obviously there were things that led up to 2020, right? Yes, Whether of course. It was like Black Lives Matter, before that Occupy Wall Street, Me Too, all those things cascading into what happened in 2020 and then now, which is like kind of centered on labor. And I think because of social media and like the, the way that information is getting out there so quickly, people are quick to like, when, when something is, information is not relayed in a good way, Yeah, people are quick to like, here's the facts. Here is the evidence of it and putting that out there, you know, and, and there's a resurgence of journalism that are happening by like just ordinary people like, OK, even with sag after take take sag after, for instance, people showing their residual checks like here is the evidence of yes. us not getting paid. I worked on Orange and the New Black. Look at look at all the, the residuals, foreign foreign fees, foreign fees. And then he says three cents, three cents. Like, yes. oh, you think I'm rich? No, I'm a working actor and this is what it looks like. And I think that's what is so empowering right now is that everyone is finally sharing these stories. Like I have so many friends who are on several sides of the business and a lot of times they're just fair to share their stories. Even when Me Too was happening, there were women who, who did not share certain stories during that time because you are afraid of the blowback. If you're a person of color, you're afraid of this blowback because you know like there's an executive who may not hire you again. Yes. You know, that could definitely happen. There's a writer's room or a, uh, a casting room like if that won't hire you again. You know, even now, like sometimes I just want to say those names, but I can't do that. You know, of course, and I was like, well, they hire me again and I don't want to share somebody else's story because that's not mine to share. Yeah. You know, but like, you know, that having those the, these uh, other these groups empowered right now and like having them see other people share their stories helps them out getting through like the traumas that they've experienced in any of these types of in any types of rooms castings yeah writers rooms and all of it you know because it's it's there's so many things going on that are happening despite the writer strike that you get from producers and whatnot and it's always like at the very bottom you have these the writers and the actors and crew members you know taking the brunt yes from people at the top we like to look for like what unites us what what's helps us remember that we're all in this together and in many ways 
we like humanity we're we're all that we have and when when we turn against each other we we actually turn against ourselves we, we stop being on our own team as as our buddy Tarek likes to say be on your own team the the thing that strikes me is that the the common ground that i think that you're describing what i think i hear is and tell me if i'm wrong but the commonality that that is uniting so many people in this space is this recognition that there is trauma. There's a catastrophic level of mass human suffering. It might not necessarily be that your house is underwater, as as could be in the case literally in, in, in Vermont and other places where there's flooding, but that people like you your colleagues the, the the folks on stage are spending these long exhausting hours away from family and friends and there's just nothing or at least not nearly enough to show for it yeah definitely not and you know we're united in that right now it's like called labor and we're, we're thinking about the labor side of it but it's yeah. all the hardships that you that are imposed on us because you know, you're not making enough to just sustain a living, you know, and with inflation happening the way it's been and your your salary is not increasing at a certain level, you can't afford to feed your family. You're stressed out because of the bills that aren't coming, worried about whether a residual check is going to come in or isn't going to come in or how many other jobs you have to take. Yeah. And all that, those stresses just compound on anything that you're going through and anything that you may be going through at the workplace. And if you listen to what the Teamsters at UPS are saying, it's just like, yeah, the full-timers are making $45 an hour. Yes, they're going to get an increase in raise in salary of a dollar something. But they're like, we're not fighting for us. There are part-time workers who are only getting paid 16 an hour. And that's what Solidarity is about. It's like, yeah, we're making this. Yeah, we're getting an increase. But you're forgetting about this, that all these other people are working and they're they're you're, you're not compensating them. They're doing ostensibly the same job, but just not full time. So they are getting punished by only getting $16 an hour. Like, a, what is that? A third of what the yeah. full time worker is getting paid. And that's what is going on with like, you know, SAG and the WGA is like everyone starts seeing like, oh, you everyone in actor is so rich. And it's like, yeah, there's a certain percent. <laughs> Yeah. That may have been wealthy. And a lot of them are on the streets with us because it's something I heard in that first week of the strike. This writer from, he wrote for David Letterman, Bill Sheft, and he just said, yeah, I, I had a successful career. I'm not out here for me. Yeah, I want everybody who comes behind me to be successful and have a chance to to live a, a positive life and just live to, to maintain like some some cost of living you know, doing this. And that's why he comes out every, almost every day to pick it, you know? And this is somebody who was, who had been on Letterman probably like 20 years. Wow. Just still coming back out in pavements. And like, I remember texting him like, Hey, can I get you to come out to the financial district for this location shoot at 5 AM? And he said, okay. And it showed <laughs> up, you know? Uh, and, and sometimes it's hard to get my friends to come out to that. And, and like, sure. just it's that, that empathy, you know, like mm -hmm. saying like, Hey, I, I, I don't want somebody to struggle. I'm, I'm out here for them. You know, I'm out here for somebody else. I think that's so cool 
about what's happening now is like everyone is they're not just fighting for themselves they're fighting for other people they're fighting for another generation they're fighting just for artists and creatives and for labor and um, i think that's just really exciting and that's what got me up every day for like what until the actors want to try like 75 days or 73 days <laughs> so this is what i'm curious about because as you've, you've described this that a person like bill chef thank you sir for your work if you happen to hear this thank you you're you're a saint go making sure you stay hydrated um, and and the, get those electrolytes too. I've I've seen the the Instagrams of all of the stars that are out there. All of all of the folks that 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 one one percent of one percent that are out there most days doing that work. I and and that's incredible. But as many as of those that we see, surely there are dozens more that might not be out there that that make a different choice which is their choice to make but i wonder do you think that there's a through line be that helps a person to have that level of empathy for one's fellow person that we can trace like like what makes a person feel compassion for another person i guess is the question i don't know where that comes from <laughs> I mean, for me, it's 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 that moment where there's always those moments where you're when you were a child and you you remember your origin story and like maybe yeah. this happened to you when you were a kid and you had that feeling like I don't want this for everybody else. Like, yeah, I got inflicted with this trauma, or maybe this is just what I feel. You know, sure. Like I got inflicted with this trauma, or my friends got inflicted with this trauma. I don't want that for everybody else. Maybe it is in those cartoons or books that we that we read. And it was like, oh, that's a hero. Maybe that's what yeah. I'm trying to do. I want to do that for somebody else. I'm okay with sacrificing. It's that need to put somebody else before you in, in yeah. front of you. Like, like, I'm okay with that. I think it's it's in good teachers that you, you see their sacrifices and like not necessarily parents, but parental figures who you see what they did, they gave you some advice and yeah. what they went through and, and watching that, you know, You're, we're in an era where they're banning so many books, you know, it's, it's having a chance to like read a book and seeing that somebody out there reflects who you are. And you're like, oh, and that like, okay, now I had to love myself. I could have yes. love for others. And that's when their empathy gets born, you know? That person on the cover of that book looks like me. Exactly, That that's so huge. Like, I, I, it's so huge and so rare to see that, you know, it's, it's, and, and now, you, you know, there's a movement against it and, and it's, it's insane for lack of a better word, but it's like a, a way to like, it's almost a way to stymie or to, 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 to stop empathy from happening because there's like, there's always a pushback and a need for erasure yeah. people's existence. And I think that's what gets people out in the streets more. It's just like, no, you will not erase us. You will not, our stories will be told in some way, you know, Wh whatever that story is, it's like, we're going to be there for you, for others. And you see it on Instagram, you know, like, yeah, where people start sharing stories that has nothing to do with them. But it's like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And and that that's that's great. You know, the, the, the sucky part is because of the algorithm, we're only getting shown what we like to see. And yes. that happens for both sides. And everyone just sees their own echo chamber. I wonder what that what the algorithm looks like for for an executive AMPTP looks like just someone saying that, like, 
go like go count your money or or compassion is compassion is meaningless or or it doesn't sell or or find a way to to or or or, or even more insidiously find a way to go sell compassion and monetize it or whatever. Well, I mean that's what it is, right? Not the same week that the actors went on strike where where Bob Iger's statement came out and then the executive statement came out about starving these strikers out until they can't yeah. afford their apartments. And then Bob Iger saying that, you know, everyone's being unreasonable. Bob Iger, Zaslav uh, from Warner Brothers Discovery, from Warner Brothers, yep. Zuckerberg, mm -hmm. they were all at a billionaire's summer camp. Like, I, I don't remember the name of it, but you could look it up. It's it's like a literally a billionaire retreat that got started in like, like by hedge funds, I think, or financial services. And they get a bunch of billionaires out there to just hang out. We're having a sort of glass onion moment, but in real life. This is... I, this I, is I firmly the believe they're doing the squid games there. <laughs> I firmly believe they're doing the squid games. Let's go off grid and it's just like, who are we murdering today? <laughs> All right, oh, now that gosh. we've got that done. The frightening thing is you're you're a student of history, as am I. Th there's no reason for us to be surprised by any of this when there's this level of, of disparity of access to basic human need, support, and wealth. This is Rome burning as Nero fiddles. This is even further back. This is the, the Pax Romana while there seems to be some element of peace that that hundreds of thousands of other cultures are slowly trampled out or their their voices crushed into suppression this is the the time of charles dickens and a christmas carol this is the time of the great depression this is one of the greatest times of such economic strife i i imagine certainly in, in our lifetime like the the three of us are are millennials here on the call so it's like it's hard to remember a time in our lifetime besides like the, that so-called golden era of the 80s where there hasn't been a steady trajectory towards widening disparity of wealth inequality and the, the, through the lens of history, this almost seems inevitable that there would be this shutdown of labor when what's been communicated to us and the, and the way that we experience labor is that we see it dramatized. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. Like I, I remember in 2020, it did feel like, okay, this is it. This is the, the fall of Rome. We're in a pandemic yeah. and yeah. this is happening. But now we're in this moment where it's just like you're wondering if uh, it's like that Shakespearean moment. And it's like, is this the moment where somebody's going to get Caesar and be like, Yo, like what, what <laughs> happens here? If And it's not coincident. Like I have so much conversations with Teamsters that they not Teamsters with IATSE, how the IATSE contract is in September of yes. 2024. So it's no coincidence that they keep our contracts apart so that we this couldn't happen all at the same time. Yeah. You know, like imagine that. You know, like where everyone puts the stock market ahead of people and shareholder and investor value. Everyone dives into if I could buy these shares, it becomes this gamble. Whereas executives and CEOs, they're kind of gifted the stocks or they get it at a superbly large discount. Whereas like you got to put your money up. You know, or you put your pension up like like law enforcement. That's one of the biggest things is like their pension is huge. The teacher's pension is huge. Whoever gets yes. to control that is has so much 
influence, you know, who gets to, to, to run their pension funds. So, so I, with technology going the way it is, the way Wall Street uh, is toting AI right now, and you have stocks like NVIDIA and Adobe, which are just skyrocketing just because people are basically celebrating the erasure of jobs. Yes. And then, you know, me being like a, a science nerd and everything, like the singularity projected for 2029, it's like, this is like a matrix moment in time. And I'm like, are we like, we can't just turn our, I don't understand people who are celebrating all this because, or, or this AI, which is really statistics, because it's all based off of stuff that we've done, right? Yes. AI doesn't think for itself. It's fed our scripts and then it does it. It, it takes in our bodies and maps our skin onto it. They, they want to fully scan a human being and just use that body in perpetuity. You know, like literally just obliterated your existence and paid you like a thousand bucks for it or something like that and erased that job. Like tent cities are growing across the nation. I don't see how somebody doesn't see that there's a problem happening right now. And I feel like somebody should be held, people should be held accountable for whatever is happening right now, because everyone's credit is just getting extended for the past year. They, last year, even though like there were two consecutive quarters of economic downturn, you know, it wasn't labeled a recession. And if it's not labeled a recession, it's not a recession. And then everyone's credit got extended. So they, they had more, they had, they still had money to spend, but now everyone is in larger debt. I don't understand how like, somebody's in being held accountable for that. And then 2020, the Paramount Accords, which yes. got erased, which was like a 1940s case, a, a antitrust case got erased while we were, you know, dealing with a pandemic, dealing with protests, dealing with so many things, all the emotional turmoil out, out of that. Yeah, I, I just don't, I, I feel like there's going to be another calm in a year or two. And then I don't know what that next explosion really looks like, because there's just a lot of people who are hurting right now. And it's like a dog barking in the background. It was like, yes, I agree. <laughs> that, that dog will be the unofficial mascot of the episode. Yeah. We, we should give the dog a name the, the, and, and hold space for the dog. What is the dog's name? Spot. Spot. Yeah, the dog's name is Spot. Spot just started barking. Okay, Spot. <laughs> it looks like the dog's name is Spot. You said Spot. Dog started barking again. Spot started barking. Yeah, all right, Spot. <laughs> Kiki has therefore dubbed, so therefore is, so therefore ever shall be Spot, the unofficial mascot of season two episode insert number here yeah whatever i don't know it's coming out it's coming out very very soon because talking about the strike is important and even though the strike is clearly not going away like we need to keep talking about it justice but but that's the thing though right we so we're so what what we're talking about is systems sometimes i worry that our vision gets so myopic so so nearsighted that we lose sight of as you've identified the systems in play and understanding human behavior by paying attention to how the systems work you identified that there have been these quiet eradications. These are these are the the patterns of behavior that happen when when there are not safeguards in place to prevent the hoarding of resources, in in place to prevent the actual creation of scarcity when abundance is the reality. None of this is necessary. I, I wonder what as you've identified. Because we, we, what the next 
outcry from the oppressed person, from the sick, the hurting, the injured, the exhausted, the dying of preventable disease person will be when it happens again. Because as you've identified, like there's no reason to think that it won't. And probably in a more extreme iteration like is there will that all i have are all of these existential questions will there ever be a time where enough will actually be enough you know i I think as far as if if i map out time like i feel like occupy wall street was like the first big thing that was happening at one point because that Mm. was like i think there was like 9 11 sure occupy wall street felt like a thing that was happening nationally sure it felt like nationally and then that may have moved into i want to say next was love is love yeah like that phrase came out after a shooting right after occupy wall street and then black lives mattered and then me too and then the george floyd breonna taylor protests it just feels like the window between these big national things is getting smaller and smaller each time. And I feel like whatever comes next is going to be, I don't know. At one point, all of the movements have to like realize that they're interconnected <laughs> and, and they're not standing individually because it's always the same people out, you know, it's just, but at one point it's just like, oh, it's it's all of us and we're all in this and we're all struggling. But you, you see it on the ground, you know, there's, there is friction between it. Like you'll see a right wing movement within labor, you know, like we're, yes. we're, we're united in labor right here, but like there's also this right wing sentiment happening here. And, you know, there was an era in history or at least in recent history of like the eighties and nineties where right and left kind of at least talked about things. It felt like they talked about it, whether or not they came to an agreement or not. I don't know but it felt like they could talk about it in public in a way that let people feel like they came to resolution or became more intelligent afterwards. But now it's no longer like that. I don't like your face. I don't like anything. About, I don't know. It's just, well, that there's, was just, the- there's just a level of hate that is out there now that I, I yeah. you know, maybe it was buried all this time. Or yeah, it was buried or maybe yeah. we didn't see it so harshly and we didn't realize it was happening nationally. And then now that people could speak so loudly, it's just like, oh shit. All these people hate us. Lipstick on a pig, I guess. If you're like me, you love it when it's easy and uncomplicated to put good out into the world. And nothing helps you do those things more than a strong cup of coffee. Enter today's sponsor, BVP Coffee. BVP Coffee Company provides single origin coffee and unique blends from all around the world, all produced right here in Philadelphia. Their latest coffee, 1867, is an ode to the rich and illustrious legacies of Howard University and Morehouse College. BVP Coffee donates a dollar from each bag sold to support business students attending historically black colleges and universities. I tried it and loved it and makes a great iced coffee. BVP Coffee has a special offer for Uncommon Good listeners. Right now, you can go to their website, bvp.coffee, and save 10% on your order by using the code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout. You can even use this code for recurring coffee subscriptions, so you're always saving 10% and never missing a day of delicious coffee. When you use our code, you're supporting coffee farmers, HBCU students, BVP Coffee, and the podcast. 
That's code UncommonGoodPod at checkout at bvp.coffee. Now back to the program. I'm thinking about behavior, thinking Mm -hmm. about how it's been so common to just see more aggressive and violent and life-threatening behavior motivated by clear signs of identity markers worth of discrimination, whether that's racism or queer phobia or ableism or ageism or any of the other things that, I mean, let's name it, that makes you not a a young, able-bodied white man. Right. I think what you've identified is that there used to be some sense of whether it was public shaming or some sense of decorum that kept people from expressing behaviors and saying the inside thing out loud or doing like the the violent fantasy thing to another person or writing a policy that allows those things to happen more easily yeah i, I don't know man it's it, it, I, I don't know because it's just like you have scotus is just a race what 60 years or more, six seventy years they just like every day it's like oh we fuck this shit we're doing this and uh yeah that existed like there was some type of balance at least yeah <laughs> somewhere right or maybe it didn't exist i i have I, I have no idea i struggle to figure that out every day like were we just blind and and that I mean, it was always happening. It's not like like right. none of us experienced some type of bigotry at some point, uh, sure. multiple times. It's just that it's exacted on a media level now, which is insane. You know, we we didn't have that. Maybe we did. I don't know. Well, well, let's. <laughs> it it let's... feels all sad. A lot of it feels sad. <laughs> and it's just when I go out in the in the street when I'm striking, I'm yeah. not gonna lie to see some of the people online and it's usually like the most diverse of crowds, you know, like the people in the crowds are just like, we'll see the, especially at those, when it was those early morning pickets, it was like people of color, women, queer. It was like, it was just like a whole group of us. And it was like, it's interesting that the the people who have been activated kind of reflect this. And, but this isn't necessarily indicative of what the writer's rooms, all writer's rooms look like, you know, but we're fighting for more than just what, the writers are fighting for it's just like because we know we'll probably leave with a better you know i don't know no you do like say it like say it no it's it's just like we know what our struggles has been that whole time so we've been waiting for this moment to say all this stuff you know and it's like we know that people have to get behind it you know and i do feel and i've had this conversation with you know black people in iatsi it's like do you feel that black people will come out of this? The writers will come out of it in a better way. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know that part, but I'm not going to stop fighting. Yeah. I don't stop. All I could do is try to push for change. You know, I definitely enjoy the time that I spent on the picket and I'm going back next week for a sport solidarity day. So we'll see me there Wednesday. If that's where you're going to be at. Oh, thank you. you. So, yeah, the, this is a thing that strikes me just as, as you're talking about this, because we've had the pleasure of talking about how you're pivoting from from a, a life of having done completed your military service and looking to move into writing and into into working in the entertainment industry. Like, what does this feel like for you as a person who is this is the career that you're looking to create? And yes, like I've 
that's that's not true i haven't disabused myself of of the the dream of of like like having like a viral video and then like turning this into major podcast empire but okay so so yeah there i'm i'm admitting my own little lie but what does this look like to 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 start working this i always knew i would be here it's like when i was gonna be here and be confident and strong enough in my talent and my ability to make this my career and now that it's a fight it's power for the course i've fought for everything i've ever wanted in my life this is no different you know we fight every day that's what we do and my father taught me how to go out and get what i wanted and this is no different something i want i'm gonna go get it i don't know i'm not dissuaded at all you know, bring it on. It's kind of how I feel about it. The sort of fight that you both are describing, what's the spirit under that for each of you? I know I know for me it's just sort of like it's like existential nothingness. Like if 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 for for whatever little things that, that I fight about, like if it if if I don't keep going, then like there there isn't anything else. But I found out very early on why the cage bird thing and sometimes mm-hmm. it's because that's all she can do. I don't want to to diminish the fight at all, but I mean, it's all I know, honestly. How do you feel, Don? Was that? I feel like that was color purple too. How long you been fighting? All my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Sophia. Yeah. I, I, it's not despair because when I'm in despair mode, I am just on my couch for hours and hours. <laughs> It's not that. For me, it's almost like if if I keep fighting, I don't have to think about how fucked up everything is. It's almost a distraction. It's also it's like if I sit down and have to think about what is happening and how jacked up the situation is, yeah, I may enter that despair mode. And it's like, no, I have to push myself outside. Just using the strike as an example, I remember like, you know, we were like, by the third week, we were so exhausted. There was like a, a small number of us that were doing like these early morning pickets and we'd be like going from like one production to another and sometimes yeah. like 12 hours of just picketing from like, and then you couldn't sleep because, you know, you get home and then you're like trying to figure out where the next picket is and we don't know because we're like trying to figure out what the next production is like, where the street signs at, we're looking for cones. We have like people on the streets finding cones for us like, okay, there's there's no parking signs out here. What time should right. we get there? Well, if we get there at five, the trucks may have already arrived. We got to get there before like the Teamsters arrive. We got to do all this. And then one time I was just like burnt out and we were having meetings and Celine Robinson, she was a, she's a writer. She was a writer on SVU. She wrote on Andor. We only, I only met her like maybe the second day of the strike outside of Silver Cup. And sure. She she's like, all right, I'll see you at, at this pick at 2 a.m. And and I'm like, I thought we were supposed to take a day off. And I went home. I'm like, I'm not going in. And I see some text message and I'm just like, all right, <laughs> this is what we do. If we keep fighting, I don't got to think about how fucked up this is. I don't got to think about like, why aren't there? Why isn't every writer in New York here with us? Why are we doing the fight for everybody? Yeah. And it's just like, no, don't think about that. If I keep doing it, somebody else may join on and and that's what you hope and it's like her saying that she was going to be out there at 2 a.m was just like all right i'm gonna be out there at 2 a.m you know you need somebody to be there and just be like be like a driving force and she would say i see you know and that just you try and find your motivation any way you can i kind of look for it i'm trying to find something to cling on to a lot of times it's like almost like and sometimes I, i call my friend Eric Hutchison up sometimes and I'm just like he's like I just realized that when 
you talk to me, you never want advice. You just want to be heard and, and know that someone's out there trying to listen to you. Yeah. And you want to know that whatever decision you've made is okay. And I think that, that that's part of it for me. It's like, I, I, I know I want to go out there. I know I want to continue that fight. But if like, if somebody gives me the briefest gap, the smallest entryway to like take a break or a breather, and I'm not saying that I probably need that breather. Yeah. But the thing is, if I take too long of a breather, even as just a creative, like if I take too long away from writing, then it grows. Then the apathy grows in me. That's just how I am. You know, if I take a week off from writing, it's like it's, it's going to take me two weeks to get back into that flow. If I take this amount of time off from the gym, it's just like, now nah, I just want to, you know, it's, it's all those stresses are adding up, you know, yes. and why you have to go to therapy. It's just like, oh, man, I got to deal with all this stuff. And you start thinking about it. And I to me, I'm looking for a reason to not think sometimes. I yeah. just want to act and not act in a bad way. But like all these experiences that have led up to this moment have told me that this is a good thing and this will help people out or, you know. So that, that's what I kind of go into autopilot in many ways, not artificial intelligence pilot, but autopilot. And also the residuals check might be shit. So there won't be any money for therapy anyway. Hey, oh, yeah, there's no longer residual checks. That's the bigger, that, that's a huge thing. You yeah. know? There was a time where we got money and you, you could kind of use that to carry yourself over between jobs. But now it's just like the way streaming happened and the way they moved it with a contract that's from still just kind of duct taped on from the 60s it's like there's no way you can make a living off of a creative anymore and they're literally trying to just like feed our scripts into ai and then use that you know which is artificial intelligence i, I forgot where i read this though it was like somebody was just using like a try to find the the sexy term for it but it's really artificial statistics because it is all based yes. off of like and statistics is never fully accurate you know so it's it's just a big misnomer that's just pilfering off of our work you know yeah what was it machine learning or it's it, it's predictive it's trying to yeah. predict what what it thinks we might need like but but that's that's the work of being human like of seeing seeing the other seeing what the other needs like what the human spirit needs is paying attention and bearing witness and holding space for each other just choosing not to look away when shit hits the fan i guess no i feel like people are missing out on the human side of art and how important that is like this is comic con weekend i used to go to comic con in san diego while i was doing uh journalism from like maybe 2009 to 2014 or, or some, some something like that and to see the fans line up, to see the writers or the actors, imagine that like you're obliterating. They were finding connections with those people. Like, why are you writing these stories? Why are you, how, how did you act in this moment? How do you, they're connecting with the human. Yeah. They're not connecting with a computer. They want to go out and see the humans that are bringing stories that made them feel seen or made them see something in themselves that they didn't know existed. They're like, oh, this is what I want. This is the this is the energy that I'm trying to bring to life or this is how I this is giving voice to something that I didn't have a chance to give voice to. Yeah. And I, I could see myself or is this just my fucking escape? Yo, like, yo, I want to do this. You know, that's that's cool, too. Right. I feel like we're becoming or we're trying to be turned into a space where you can get Michelangelo's David at McDonald's. And it's really sad. You know, I feel like just coming in, like I, I, I might get to miss out a bit because 
they don't make movies on film no more for the most part. And there's an art to that. There's a craft to that, that, you know, if the AMPTP gets their way, you know, that might just go by the wayside altogether. And it's it's kind of sad for me. But yeah, I don't, that was just my side note. Yeah. I mean, for me, I like, I learned to edit audio on tape like learned the there there's a gosh i'm this is i'm thinking back to like the media theorists like you know like back to marshall McLuhan talking about the media is the message back to walter benjamin talking about like the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction and the way that you make art changes what the art says and changes how we consume it when you have to and yes we do use ai to help us to help us produce this podcast because we 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 don't we legitimately do not have the staffing and the resources to be able to do more so yes not a perfect world i'm sorry the internet but there's something to be said for understanding the human cost of knowing how to create things for folks and when you spend hours cutting cells together reattaching them you have to make one very careful choice because you only get to cut the film once and there is no undo button it feels somehow different when you make pilgrimage to comic-con and you go there you buy the plane ticket and you pay for the hotel with the with your 12 other friends so that you can afford to buy your Gatorade and granola bars for the week like it feels different than if you're watching the stream from home i hate admitting how wonderfully kitschy that nicole kidman amc like like the the pre the the pre-film commercial is but it's true there is something to be said about the almost ritual like experience of committing time and resources simply as a participant as an end user to enjoying the art maybe you just enjoy it more and sure i mean it's like improv maybe the art sometimes will be shit like hot take like indiana jones and dial of destiny was not great and frankly kind of racist but was indiana jones ever not racist though (laughs) 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 wasn't it racist it wasn't always like that (laughs) it belongs in a museum no it belongs back in the ground where you found it Great job of handling the Southeast Asian people and, and yeah. frankly, the East Asian people. Yeah. Good job, George Lucas. And like we can knock it out in one. <laughs> uh, I, I just... I'll rephrase. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think what, I think what I'm looking... The, the, the qualifier that I, I was hoping for some sense of potential redemption is that this was the first indiana jones film that was produced after all of the events that you've identified the last one was produced what i guess it was probably conceived and scripted like went through storyboarding in 2006 in order to be released in 2008 maybe sooner but like what movie was that crystal skull with kate blanchett being a being a communist is that the one with um shia labeouf yeah shia labeouf yeah i did not watch that uh, I I mean, he's the Karen one that Allen. slapped Alan Cummins in the in the ass, right? Yeah, at a at a at cabaret. He smacked him right Jesus in the middle Christ. of a show. 
was like, I remember that shit. Isn't that, didn't that not happen? Didn't he, wasn't that night he got arrested or something? I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) You're not wrong. I feel like that happened. I mean, like, again, not an ex, not like a licensed expert, but like, the kid has trauma. Like, yes, like the what 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 was it that he's that he he later confessed that some of the really excessive components, like really like sort of exhibitionist, like exploitative components of Honey Boy, were were probably like largely exaggerated and potentially fictitious. But they're like the the boy has trauma. I guess what I mean is that yes, Lucas and Spielberg were not did not direct, did not write. Were, were like two or three circles removed like executive producers probably probably at the level of creative consultant with like with potential like veto authority right but there was an opportunity to be better because of all of the reckonings of gender justice and racial justice and queer justice that have happened in the most public of fora and we got the movie that we did well i mean it's it's like you said right you can't that's why other stories just need to be told and you need to have people who are non-white (laughs) able-bodied white men who who tell everything because they won't see that story. They'll make a story with zombies. So that, that, that's why we need more writers at all levels who could uh, bring their experiences to the front and have a livable working conditions and get compensated fairly for the stories that they're bringing out and that that we bring to the table, you know? Yeah. I think that's the, that, that, that to me is always the case. Anytime somebody is like, they're looking at a Marvel project, any of the big blockbusters, all I could think is like, don't spend your money on it. That's my always approach. It's just like, you know, I, I stopped being interested in the big blockbusters. You know, if there's a property that I love and I'm nostalgic for, then I'll go to it. But like, I'd much rather support anything that is independent or at least, you know, some story that's different, some something that's not McDonald's. Like all those all those blockbusters feel like McDonald's to me. I can't do it anymore. That, that's that's at some point that's the only power you have is like to not give somebody your money. And it's like I'm not going to give you my money. If I if there's something else or, or maybe there's something in that movie that's just like I want to give my money to that, you know, then that's that's what I will do. Like for me it's just like that's why right now, even in movies, I, I don't go to a lot of movies. I'd rather just find a new book, a new author yeah. that speaks something, something that's different, something that makes me feel. I don't, I go to a movies and it's just like shock, shock, shock. But have I felt anything? Have I been moved to anything? Has it changed me in any way or like given me another perspective? And it's like, if I, if I haven't learned or somehow gotten better, I think, I don't know, it, it, it feels like a waste of, I, I leave there mad that i spent my money <laughs> i don't yes. want to leave an entertainment thing and be like oh man why did i why did i spent 20 dollars plus give myself indigestion with this these nachos this this cheese and this this slurpee that i ended up getting because i will always get the slurpee and the nachos yeah cheese, which is like 40 dollars when i could read a book and that lasts me for what a week maybe depending on how long i'm reading it or you know two days so much what more is, enjoyment what is the last thing you saw in a theater that you were like that was money well spent besides just going into the lobby and buy and like, so that you can buy a bag of movie theater popcorn and then like just enjoying that, like at the concession stand. 
everything everywhere all at once yes i mean that 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 was my i, I sadly because of the strike I, I i wanted to see the blackening and the new spider-man movie which is the new spider-man miles morales movie but uh yeah i, I would say that yeah everything yeah. everywhere all at once that was just amazing i'll i'll so my my nachos are movie theater popcorn I, I don't know what it is about the butter, like the the butter flavoring, but it, it just it's it's nostalgic probably more than anything else. I I want to pivot a little bit. We've because we would be remiss if we didn't talk about your own work. Is it is it okay if we talk a little bit about Black Boy Joy and True True? Like I, sure. I if you're because I I know that you're on strike for cert for for with with the Writers Guild, but but I do know that we do have that to celebrate that you are still releasing a book in August. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not screenwriting, thankfully. You know. So, um, Black Boy Joy was this was this compendia that you you contributed to, and that was how I first um, became aware of your work as a writer. It, it became this thing that I just sort of like a switch flipped for me, and then eventually, eventually, like I picked up a copy of the book and read, and then here comes True True. Please tell us all about the book well it, it was funny because that those two things actually happened around the same time because i found out i would be in black boy joy november 8th i think of 2020 because what happened was i was in that big depressed moment in 2020 yeah. of like june after i got attacked by the cops and then in like july a friend was like she was like doing this market research thing and she just like asked me to come out and then i, I didn't realize i hadn't gone outside in like 45 days. Yeah. So, so I was like in this very sad, isolated moment, just like living alone and everything. And then August came around and Danielle Page, amazing writer, wrote the Dorothy Must Die series and the Raven series. She, she tweets to me, she goes, Don, enter this. And it was Kwame Umbalia had a tweet out and it said they were looking for two unpublished, untra not traditionally published. Sure black male or non-binary writers to potentially contribute to this uh, anthology called Black Boy Joy. I was not in a happy space. And then I think it was due on August, uh, the entries were due October 30th. And I think I, it was, I wrote it that night or October 31st or whatever. I wrote it that night, but in my mind, I probably was writing it the whole time. And I just wanted to write a story about a kid who does something that he may get in trouble for, you know, because he, he jumps a fence. Then he just goes on a fucking space adventure and just goes on, like, just has a, an adventure in space because you never get that as a, a black kid gets to just have fun and go on an adventure and it not be about, you know, trauma or anything like that. And I just wanted to do that. Yeah. So on November 8th, I think you're supposed, we were supposed to find out by like November 5th. And then I was like, November 6th came around. I was like, ah, oh, of course I didn't get it. You know, I submitted my manuscripts to like uh, my first manuscript that I ever wrote, which will never see the light of day. Got like sure. rejected like a billion times. It took me like 10 years to write it. It was like this fantasy book. And yeah, it just got purely rejected by literary agents and editors. Yeah. And at the same time I had submitted. So, so yeah, so, so the November 8th came around, Kwame writes to me and he's like, love you to be in this anthology. And I'm just like, I just started doing bad. I was like, what? This is real. And I kept reading it over and over again. Cause I was like, no, no, no. The, they were supposed to announce it two days ago. So I was like, whatever reason. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then 
on December 1st, eight chapters of True True went out to editors. And on December 2nd, Stacy Barney of Penguin asked to have a Zoom with me. So we met that Friday and then three more editors started emailing me, asking to meet with me. So this is all in the span of two months that I had one black boy, Joy, I got, they said they wanted to put my story into the, the anthology that would come out in 2021. And then editors were interested in this novel about, so True True is about a kid from Brooklyn, Caribbean parents who transfers to a Manhattan prep school to pursue robotics. He gets attacked in a racist altercation, and then he reads Sun Tzu and stages a war against the school and the administration, or he, he sets out to do that. And so, you know, juggling, like dealing with my own traumas of being like attacked in, in high school or getting into fights over racism, working with students today who are dealing with like the same things. Yeah. That was always, that was also putting me in a, a stressful mindset. Cause I'm like going through like what those emotions are and reliving it in many ways while dealing with the fact that I'd been attacked by the cops. Black boy joy comes around and gives me this moment to like, think about what was happy again, <laughs> you know? Yes. And then, you know, in mid December, 2020, the book true, true goes to auction. And then I end up with Stacy Barney, who's a, a black woman who coincidentally grew up in Brooklyn and is from Caribbean parents. And she really loved it. She loved, she said she loved my voice and yeah, then black boy joy came out in 2021 and then true, true's coming out. August 1st. So it was like a really exciting moment for me to have that feeling. But then you're trying to just write and then you don't have a time to just enjoy it. Yes. You know, so you're just being in the writing mode. Like even, you know, when Black Boy Joy became a New York Times bestseller, I, it didn't mean anything to me. You know, I was just like, all right, what, what does that mean? I'm, I'm still living in the same place. I'm still dealing with the same bills, dealing with the same socioeconomic problems. Yeah. But like, it was cool. Like, Three weeks later, when it was like, oh, LeBron James came up, released a book with another writer who probably did the writing and didn't debut number one on the list. And I didn't, and Black Boy Joy had debuted number one. And I was like, oh, wow. I didn't realize that the New York Times bestseller list was like, there was this prestige in it, you know, because you know yeah. that certain authors are going to obviously be at the top because of their celebrity status. So I was like, oh, wow, this book with just Black writers. And, and, and the thing about that was great about Black Boy Joy is like, it introduced me to this writing community that was amazing and beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and super supportive. B.B. Like Austin, George M. Johnson, Julian Winter, you know, just, just a lot of good, a lot of amazing authors. And, you know, I'm interested to see how True True goes because now my name is on the cover. And, and that is all the, the fears going on with that because, you know, you talk to other authors and you see how they're like promoting their books and doing all they can to like, you know, beat whatever algorithm is out there because, you know, it's your debut novel. You know, if you do well, it's great. If you don't, then it's like every next book remembers that kind of, yeah. you know, until you have another boost or whatever. So I don't know how any of this works. Me and Are you both. We'll, we'll all learn together. The The question for, for which that was the context is, are you, are you going to record an audiobook for it? There is an audiobook that's already been recorded. I actually wanted somebody else to do the voiceover for it because one, because it was like my debut. I didn't want to, for several reasons. I just want, I also want just, you know, because it was almost like very personal for me, this book. Yeah. Because like, there's a moment in there that is inspi inspired by stuff that I went through. Everything else is kind of fictionalized, but there is some stuff, real stuff that connects to me that I didn't want my voice when I heard it. 
Yeah. And that's what like kind of made it difficult to write at times because I was, I was like so far removing myself from the character. And then it was like, no, I need to put some of that back in there. When I first read it in galley form, I was like, oh, wow. And, and it's a lot to do with Stacey Barney's input. Like she, she talked to me like, like somebody, like, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, but I, it was more than that. It was just like, she was just very real and honest, <laughs> like brutally so. And it's what I needed. Yeah. Like, I don't need anyone to sugarcoat it. She was like, at one point, she, there was this character and she was like, yo, why are you doing my girl dirty? I was like, she just went like that with me. Big sister energy. Big sis. Aunt, and I mean, she, she, she just, it was just really good energy. And it was just like all in favor of, and she was like, never like making it about what she wanted to hear or whatnot. She was just always trying to make me a better writer, you know? Like, yeah. And she was like, you you have a great voice. I just need you to use it. And she was just like, what are you trying to, what do you want to say here? And then she was like, well, what, what about like, you know, so, so you got to make sure this. And like over the course of like three months, we just like, I, I like almost rewrote like 60% of the book from scratch. And it was just like, I just started, she was like chop away. And I was like just yeah. going at it. And it was just really exciting. But that was like the whole summer of last year. It was just like going through it. And I did find one. But anyway, the the the, the, the audio book, Christopher Grant did this, this amazing audio book. He, he, amazing narrator. And I, I'm, I'm just really excited for it. I haven't, I haven't actually heard it, but when I heard him audition for it, Chris Grant, when I heard him audition for it, I was like, I heard a bunch of other auditions first and I was not feeling them. Sure. And I was happy that they actually looped me in on it. Cause I was like, oh man, this is how, this is what ends up happening is that you get a, a voice that doesn't really match it. And Christopher Grant, just like, he really had a, he, he ended up, he grew up in Brooklyn. The moment I heard it, I was like, this is somebody who's from Brooklyn. This is somebody who at least has a Caribbean family. Uh, he got a lot of the stuff in it. And it was just, it was amazing to hear it. just the audition. He, like, he did like four pages and it was like, I was like, oh, I could listen to this. This is great. Thank God I didn't <laughs> say, let me voice it. A couple of things. I love that for you. You got to cast the actor. And and I can't wait to hear it. What is the way for us to purchase the audiobook and a a hard copy that is that brings you that that helps you the most? Well, this this is coming out when this is coming out. If th this comes out in August, wherever you buy it is fine. Okay, okay. <laughs> and you know what? Like I find that I always tell people go to your local bookstore, but people just don't use their local bookstore, and they use one certain entity, and it's yeah. fine. I don't. I'm never going to advocate for that. I like without the local bookstore, like even if you go to your library and, and request it at your library, that's great because the, the more librarians see it, it helps so much because li yeah. li librarians are amazing people. Well, if, if, I, I mean, very selfishly, us being here in Philly. Yeah. If you hear order, order and have it shipped from Uncle Bobby's, that's 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 um, one of our local independent um, black owned bookstores here here in Philly. So very easy way to get a hold of it. I'm going to look for the audiobook when it comes out on August 1st as well. The one technical question that I wanted to ask you about the process of writing and rewriting, you identified that that you did a lot of killing your darlings, I'm, I'm, I'm sure as you rewrote, you identified also that there's this part of deciding how much of yourself to write into it and how much and it's it sounds like from from the way that your editor pushed you that to, to write more of yourself into it than what you would have otherwise you identified also that there are elements of your lived experience that 
you're trying to be careful around. You're trying to, I mean, I mean, you, you, you did talk about some of those things as being traumatic. And if this is not a safe place to lean into, then fine, we'll move on. But what is the, at least for you, like what is the process of trying to ride that, it, what feels like a, a fine line between figuring out how to put your lived experience on the page, put your life experience on the page to tell a better story while also protecting the inside Don at the same time. Is that a balance? Do you like push a little hard and then ask forgiveness from yourself later? What does that look like for you? I think I came at the book in a way like I wanted to be completely separate, you know, because I, I in a way I knew it was based off of this one traumatic moment. And I knew that in my mind, I didn't rec even recognize it as a trauma. I just thought that this we, we go through, like you get attacked and racist attacks that happen, you know, but do you equate it to trauma? No, it's just life. This is what we do. We, we fight back or we do this. It's one of those things like when you're a writer, you're like, is this memoir or is this fiction? And then like, you have to separate that. So that, that was the, the first thing It's like, well, this isn't memoir. This is, con this is modern day. And this is a different, this, the character is different. Yeah. Like, even though the characters from Brooklyn is Caribbean parents, so many differences from Gil and myself. And for me to force my life onto Gil would be a discredit to what Gil is going through. Yeah, there's an emotional moments that like we we definitely connect on, but we're totally different people. But it's just like that that's the thing about connecting with a character and finding the humanity in the character. And it's just like the hard thing for me was just at first I wasn't giving Gil enough voice. You know, this is young adult fiction and I wasn't giving him enough drive and enough push because he was very much an observer, which is what I was. You know, I was I was very much I'd, I'd stay in the background and and sometimes make it play out and imagine it one way. But that's not who Gil is at, at times. You know, he, he, yeah. he does push things and he gets angrier and he feels this level of pressure from his parents that they don't necessarily put on him on purpose, but he feels that because he's a child of immigrants and he's dealing with like these kind of things at home. And, you know, he has a grandma who totally loves him. And like for me in writing the grandma character, which is one of my favorite characters. And I think, I hope everyone loves her. I mean, she, she's, she, she, she's, she's a, a strong point in the book, but she's like almost like every woman role model in my life. You know, it's like yeah, put into her as well as my grandma's, you know, like the ferocity that she has and the way women tend to always have our backs. And it's like, do you have theirs? You know, it's like that kind of dichotomy is is in there for Gil, too. Hopefully I did everything justice, you know, on the page. But it, I think that that was it. You know, it's like th there's definitely parts of me in there. Like when I see the grandma, it's just like I definitely see my my maternal grandma in there. When I see think about the way she dresses and wants to party. You know, that's, yeah. that's definitely there. That's Grandma Claris right there. You know, the way she's ready to fight, that's like, there's so many other people in there who have fought for me in certain ways. And it's like, have I just given them justice? You know, I have a good friend, Rashida uh, Sheeds, and she always would call in to check on me. And it's like that kind of energy is in there, how she always has your back, you know? So, 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 yeah, I, I, I probably didn't answer your question. I'm still trying to figure all that out. But I think it's at one point I, I kept Gil too far away from me. And then at one point I had to be like, okay, there are parts of me and Gil. Let me make sure those parts are there and then let Gil 
move on his own. So last year when I was doing like one of the first big rewrites on it, um, when Stacy came back to me, she was just like, I see this character, I see this character, but you have to make sure they're standing on their own. And then with Gil, what is what is pushing him? And I knew right away when she said it, it was just like, she's like, so there's something missing from me. I was like, I know what's missing. And she said, what? I said, me? <laughs> she was like, you? And I was like, yeah. And then she read it again. She was like, oh, this is good. And I was like, oh man, was it not written <laughs> before? And I just put that in there, you know, the pressure that you feel as a, as a teenager dealing with this, like almost like it's that Maya Angelou moment, you know, like I, I, I quote Maya Angelou loosely in the book, you know, but, um, you know, when she says the, the hope and dream of the slave, you know, that, that kind of thing, like, I think as sometimes as, as, as black children or children of immigrants, you know, or children of people who have sacrificed for you, you feel that you have a burden to live up to. And it's like taking on that burden. And how do I deal with that? But then you're caught up in everything that's going on at school. And it's just like, now you're dealing with this burden and you have these people treating you a certain way at school and you want to have this fight. But you already started off this school with that other fight that you were trying to live up to these ambitions. And now these two things are kind of in conflict because if you live up to these ambitions, you don't get to fight. If you fight, you may hurt the ambitions. So then what do you do? You know, and it's like, can I move through this strategically like Sun Tzu? And is that a, is that an actual approach to life? Can you approach life as a war? Can you approach your friend circle as if they're just soldiers and you're trying to like, and is this just about you? Is this just about your beef? You know, and then all of a sudden this thing that you were trying to do for everybody else is, is it becoming just about you? And that's a lot of stuff for guilt to think about. And I wish I said it more like that this answer is getting better as i as I, hey, uh, I can't wait for the next person to ask it and for it to get even better yeah don i'm so grateful for the time that you spent with us today we have just one final question to close us out it's the same question that we ask everybody as we're coming to the end of our time and it's what would you like the world to look like when you're done with it i'd like it to be more trusting more trusting of each other and that, that, that word trust is such, such a broad word. But going back to the beginning of this thing, there were four people that I met or three people I met while on the strike that I absolutely trust. Because when you go through certain trials together, you just build certain bonds up. And I want everyone to kind of take time to, to go through trials with other people, see what they're struggling with and go through it with them. Don't don't take over their trial, but like, you know, walk with them, like just have their back. Be that person to give them water where they're when they're fighting. You know, that that's what I want. I want people to just sometimes like you don't have to be the lead in everything. And I'm not saying that you have to take a side because we, we all like in this book, Gil is the lead. Right. But in another book, Tammy's the lead. You know, everyone is a lead in their own story. And I want people to just take the time to trust themselves, to trust their emotions and know that those emotions are real and, and, and do whatever you need to do to help yourself so that you could slowly build trust towards other people and letting that trust in and giving trust to other people. My thanks to my guest, Don P. Hooper. You can learn more about how you can support striking writers and actors 
You can follow Don on Instagram at the notes in the episode description. And most importantly, you can buy his books at our affiliate link at bookshop.org to support Don, to support your local bookstore, and to support us too. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia in the unceded neighborhood of the Black Bottom community and on the ancestral land of the Lenape Nation who remain here in the era of the Fourth Crow and who fight for official recognition by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to this day. You can find out more about the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania and how you can support the revitalization of their culture by going to lenape-nation.org. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. And a special thanks to patron mascot of this episode, Spot. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support the show by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed caption video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.